And as you notice, kids make noises because you know what kids are? Kids. Teenagers know better. Or should. So let's get into the sermon. There's an urban legend. We're not sure if it's true. I couldn't tell. But it, it has Microsoft Bill Gates speaking at a Comdex Computer Expo several years ago. Supposedly, he was comparing the computer industry with the auto industry. He said this, supposedly, if GM had kept up with, with its technology like the computer industry had, we would all be driving $25 cars that got 1,000 miles per gallon. Like, wow, that, I like, who likes this idea? I, right. The General Motors representative then responded by saying, yes, but, we would, but would your car have to crash twice a day to stay running? Comparisons. We like to compare things, and usually comparisons backfire on us, and comparisons are rarely helpful. They don't just happen in the business world. Churches can fall into comparisons. We actually see this a whole lot uh, within different churches. 23 years ago, the elders of a church in Nebraska asked their pastor to resign. They came up to him and said, um, we don't like where we're going on this. We think you should be doing things that we see in the preacher in Chicago. We want to do all those things he's doing, and so we're asking you to resign. Now, understand that the church that he'd been at, that church had been growing, their attendance had been growing, uh, more activities were coming. And within a month, the church was down to 140, and then it was down to 60 and declining. All because they were comparing what they had to something they thought they needed. Their jealousy, a jealous comparison, nearly destroyed that church, and such comparisons can control or can destroy our own church, our family, and relationships. Comparisons, that's what we usually talk about as a good thing, but in this way, they can be very bad. What can we do to combat this terrible, subtle, enemy of comparison, of jealous comparisons? What can you do to conquer jealous comparisons in your own life that come before you? If you have your Bibles, turn to John 3, whether it's digital or hard copy. We're going to be there. We're going to park into John chapter 3 today. As we continue to look at our life following Christ, um, to build our foundation of unwavering faith, we're coming to John 3, where John the Baptist actually gives us a great lesson on how to combat jealousy. So let's start in verse 22. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went to the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anion near Salim because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. No one knows exactly where this place is of Anion and Siloam today. They think it's probably midway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. But what we do know is there's plenty of water there for all the baptizing. And two different preachers were in the area doing the baptizing. You have Jesus and John. That sets up the scene here. They're starting a little two churches in a sense. Let's go to verse 25. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew 
over ceremonial cleansing. Whenever a debate breaks out within a church group, you just need to know there's a red flag. Because somebody's going to be trying to win an argument. They're going to be trying to throw the facts, and they're going to stand upon their own superiority. That's generally what happens. Some translations in your Bible, it may say a discussion. Well, the discussion isn't a good translation. It was a dispute. It was an argument. Uh, The original Greek really means a forceful difference of opinion. Does that sound like a nice conversation? These two groups were fighting over purification rituals and which way was better. There was a pharisaical ritual at the time, the Essene ritual, which was part of the Qumran community nearby, and John's ritual of baptizing, and then there was Jesus' baptism. And these all were coming about, and they're like, I have a question on ritual cleansing. Is that what Jesus and John are doing? No. But this person comes up and is doing this, and he's doing this comparison, and jealousy, we need to understand this, jealousy comes from comparison. Whenever we start comparing things, we start getting jealous, whether it's a job status, a car relationship, or even a feeling. I just found out today that a father and son were golfing yesterday, and the dad won. He beat his son, and now, and I'm not saying, but Clayton needs to get better to beat his dad again. But if they start comparing... That whole row's like, oh, I can't believe you did. But we can start comparing, right? And we start getting jealous if we're on the wrong end. It breeds jealousy. Go to verse 26. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of Jordan, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people, and everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. Do you hear what they're saying? They are complaining. Hey, John, that guy who came to you, people are going to him now. They should be coming to us. Even that guy came to you, and now they're all just going to him. John, your followers are dwindling. Everybody's going over to that other guy, to that Jesus He's increasing, he's getting more numbers, and you're just standing here. The various religious groups are all arguing over who's better, which ways are right. The situation's getting nasty, and right here, John's disciples are jealous. Jealousy is one of the devil's favorite tools to bring people down. We start thinking about what that church is doing or what this church is doing, and man, I wish we could do that. We start wishing that, man, did you see that new phone? Did you see that new car? Did you see that new truck? Did you see that old car that's outside? That's a 62 Ford Fairlane. It's not mine. I want it. That'd be so cool to drive around in. I got a minivan. No, you're all wrong. No. And jealousy starts Why can't I have a cool car? Why can't I have a good... Why can't I... And we start comparing, and it breeds jealousy. So what can we do to combat this jealous comparisons before they start consuming us? 
Well, let's see what John the Baptist did. Verse 27, John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. Hey, John, that guy is collecting more followers. He's taking your followers. And John says, everything I have is from God above. They come and complain, and he instead points to God and recognizes everything comes from God. And that's where we need to start when it comes to this jealous comparison. We need to recognize that God sovereignly gives whatever he wants to whomever he chooses. He gives whatever he wants to whoever he wants. That means any success you experience comes from God, not you. Not so much because you earned it, because he graciously gives it to you. 2015, at um, Dillard University, Denzel Washington gave the commencement speech, and he said this statement. I'm going to read this, and I want you to hear the truth of what he says. While I don't agree with everything he does, and, and he might not always follow through with what he's saying here, like all of us, Listen to what he says. He told the graduates, put God first in everything you do. Everything that I have is by the grace of God. Understand that. It's a gift. I don't always stick with him, but he stuck with me. And while you're on your knees, say thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for parents. Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you, God, for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Thank you in advance for what's already yours. Isn't that good advice? To go to God and say it's all his anyways. We need to approach life with an attitude of humble gratitude. We need to approach life with humble gratitude. That way, when it's time for someone else to excel, we can rejoice with them rather than be jealous of them. You can let go of your fame to let someone else shine for a while. J.R.R. Tolkien. Who, what did J.R.R. Tolkien write? Lord of the Rings. That's right. He's very well known for that. There's another story he wrote called Smith of Wooden, Wooden Major. And in this story, Smith Smithson, a young boy, receives a rare gift in this small village celebration. It's a piece of cake that contains a silver star. Now, this, as he wears this little star on his forehead, it shines with light and allows him to travel to magical lands and possess special powers and privileges. It's a little fantastical story. But one day as he travels home from this journeys, the master cook and baker of this cake starts walking with him. And unbeknown to this little boy, this cook is actually king of all the land, the one who placed the star on that cake. As they near this little boy's house, the cook says, Don't you think, Master Smith, it's time for you to give up this magic star? Well, what is that to you, Master Cook? Why should I do it? It's mine. It came to me, and, my, and may a man not keep things that come to him? And the king said, Some things, but these are free gifts given for remembrance. But others are not so given. They cannot be given belong to a man forever because they are lent to them for a, a time. And as I was reading some more of that, I was like, that is so true. God has not given us this world. He has lent it to us. 
One, one of the things that um, we are really, we're in this transition, Casey and I are, of empty nesters. You know what? Your kids are given to you for a time. Part of that I don't like. Because I need someone to mow the yard. Yeah. But I also want to share things with them. I want them to share things with me. But they are a gift from God, lent to us. That's hard on moms. It's a lot harder on moms than it is dads. My job. That's a gift lent to me for a time. My wife. My knowledge. My experiences. My successes. Those are all lent to me from God. My failures, well, those are mine. I earn those. But nothing is mine like that. We are managers of his property. Nothing belongs to us, so we need to thank God for what we have and be ready to give it back to him when he asks for it. That's the first way of conquering jealousy comparisons before they conquer. Start with recognizing it's God's anyway. It's not ours. He gives whatever he wants to whomever he chooses. Look what else John can teach us. Go to verse 28. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. Like John, once we recognize God, that God gives whatever he wants to whomever he chooses, then we need to do what John just did right there. What did John proclaim? God sent me to tell others about the Messiah, not that I am the Messiah. He did not send me to be the Messiah. Now, John at this time is very famous. He's the wild preacher who wears weird clothes and eats weird food out in the wilderness there. And there's all these people that would just come to see this and then hear the message. And, and he had a very large crowd. He had his own disciples. Really think about that. These were people who had committed to learning from John. He was starting his own school in a sense. And when faced with the comparison trap, his, teach, or his students, hey, he's getting more popular. You need to do something. He said, whoa, I am not the Messiah. John accepted his place. He knew that he was called to point others to Jesus and... When we look at comparisons of things that are going on, isn't that all of our jobs? We need to recognize that God sent you and I to introduce Christ to the world, not for us to save it. How many of you want to fix things in your life and everybody else's lives around you? We got one honest little girl here. Good job, Adelaide. I know you guys want to fix it. I didn't see your hand. Okay. But we want to fix things. We want to, especially in the life of your family and close friends, man, if they would just do this. What did God call John to do and that he calls all? Is it your job to fix it and to save it? Or is it your job and my job to point people to Jesus who can save it? We're just the messenger. We're not the manager of all this stuff. We just have this for a little bit, the owner. And we're not... We are just a messenger. Psychologist Milton Rokich wrote a book um, called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. 
Here's a picture of the book with the same name. And he's from Ypsilanti. I think that the photo did not get put in the slides. Pull out your U version and there you can see it. Now, in this book, he described his attempts, he's a psychiatrist, to treat three different patients at a psychiatric hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, who suffered from delusions of grandeur. Now, we need to know there are a lot of teenagers, even in this room, have delusions of grandeur. That means they think they're bigger and better than they are. Right? Which one am I looking at? All of them. Okay. Now, these three each believed they were unique among humankind. They believed they came to save the world, that they were the Messiah. These three people in the psychiatric hospital believed they were God. Now, I got to talk to a guy once in a factory that he believed he was God. He told me, I am the son of God. And I was this little arrogant, hot-headed guy, and I was like, no, you aren't. And we started arguing, and all my workers were like, Dude, this guy's crazy. Don't mess with him. And I finally put down a, a cup of water. It was one of those big cups. I said, okay, stand on top of that. You're Jesus. Stand on top of that. And he kicked it and walked away mad. Now, don't do that because I could have gotten it. He, he was not right. These guys that um, this Rokich is talking about, he found it difficult to break through their realities, their perceived realities of their identity. So he decided to put them all into one room together to see if they started rubbing onto each other, realizing that guy thinks he's God, but I'm God, and, and seeing what would happen. This led to very interesting conversations. This is one of their conversations. One of them said, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. I was sent here to save the earth. Rokich said, well, how do you know that? He says, well, God told me. One of the other patients says, I never told you such thing. <laughs> now we laugh at that. It, it's sad that that really happened. But when someone exaggerates their own importance, they come close to that same absurdity. Fred Smith once said, a true leader is committed to the cause and does not become the cause. He's committed to fulfilling it, but not making it about him. Staying personally dedicated to the cause can become extremely difficult, particularly if the cause succeeds. A subtle change in thinking can overtake a leader of a successful ministry, and they can begin uh, to think needing certain things. They're all on their shoulder, and, and I've got to do it, and I've got to carry it, and this will not succeed without me. Fred Smith went on to say, I admire Mother Teresa, who decided after winning the Nobel Prize that she would not accept any more recognition because it interfered with her work. She knew she was not in the business of accepting prizes. She was in the business of serving the poor of Calcutta. And many times, like, but why not receive the prize and the award? It could help you. It might advance that. And what was she saying? It's a distraction. I don't need the recognition. I don't want the recognition because it's about Jesus. We are not in the business of accepting prizes. We are in the business of serving Christ and the people he calls you to serve. We are not the focus. 
Jesus is. And we need to make sure everything we do points to him like John just did to his disciples. If you want to conquer jealous comparisons, first recognize God gives to whatever, gives whatever he wants to whomever. Recognize God sent us to introduce Jesus to the world, not save it. And then there's one more lesson we can see from John. Go to verse 29. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friends is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. John right here says, I am only the friend of the bridegroom, or as we'd say, I am only the best man at the wedding. In biblical times, the, in Bible times, the best man made a lot of the preliminary arrangements for the wedding. He loathed becoming the center of attention. Instead, he did everything he could to point it all at the groom. That's not how weddings are today, is it? Nobody cares about the groom. We don't sit there and go, did you see the tux he was wearing? Nobody cares about the groom. It's all about the bride now. And so the groom gets the attention in this, but this metaphor is lost on a lot of us today, especially the guys, because how many guys really like going to a wedding? You just, man, I love... She pointed at her dad. He's like, no. <laughs> so let's change this metaphor and maybe you'll get it a little better. Okay? Instead of a wedding, let's talk about a football field. More guys might get that. Okay? Several years ago in 2010, Joe Ponsaki, did I say that right? Good. Nobody else knows. In Sports Illustrated, he wrote about an obscure running back named Tony Richardson. Does anybody know this guy? Heard this name? Hmm. Very few people remember him because his primary role involved helping other running backs succeed. He blocks so they can run. Over the span of 17 pro football season teams, often have paired Richardson with some of the best backs in pro football. In 2001, he was slated to be the main running back, but instead... Instead of being the main running back, he went up to his teammate, Priest Holmes, and said, it's time for me to step out of the way. You need to be getting the ball. I'll make sure I do everything to help you. Holmes went on to lead the league in rushing, but Richardson never grew envious of or resentful. As Holmes, Priest Holmes would report, he said, he used to call me up and say, I just saw you on Sports Center." He was happier for me than I was for myself. This guy right here is what we need to be doing. All of the running backs that Richard helped succeeded said that their influence beyond blocking for them came from this guy. He would constantly talk to them through the game, advising, pushing, encouraging, and inspiring them. In an interview, this guy, Tony Richardson, said, I can't explain it, but it just gets... It just means more to me to help someone else achieve glory. There's something about it that just feels right. His whole thing, I want to make somebody else bigger and better than I am. Well, it feels right because it is right. This is what all of us should be doing, is lifting and elevating others up, and more so, we need to be lifting and elevating Christ up so that everybody can see him. We're the supporting role. If we want to conquer jealous comparisons, we need to understand this. 
The third thing, which will be up here, recognize you play the supporting role, not the main role in life. This statement really flies contrary to our current culture. We are taught, elevate yourself. Um, be the shining star. Get what's due to you. And yet that's not what Scripture and God calls us to be. Which is maybe why jealousy creeps into our lives so much. We need to do what John did, what that running back did. To put it bluntly, we need to humble ourselves. In your own mind, decrease your own sense of importance to the world around you. Diminish those grandiose ideas of greatness and accept the supporting role that God has assigned to you. Look what John said to his, his dwindling followers in verse 30. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. That is a huge statement because in the Greek, it really means he must become greater and greater and greater and greater and greater, and I must become less and less and less and less. This is the third time in John 3 that, John, that the word must is used. First, there's the must of the sinner, which is John 3, 7. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Jesus says you must. The second one in John 3 is about the Savior. So the first one's sinner, this one's Savior. John 3, 14. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then the third one, so we had sinner, we have the Savior, now we have the saint or the Christian. John 3.30, he must become greater and I must become less. In this one chapter, we see this word repeated, and repeated means it's important. And this, this is what we must do. If you want to come to God, if you want to be saved and live in eternity, you must it's an absolute. You must be born again. That, that's what Jesus said. And Jesus must, an absolute, must be lifted up. He needs to be the focal point. And the believer needs to, he must dwindle his own importance so that Jesus gets that. There's um, these things in math called greater than and less than. It's Pac-Man signs, okay? And while I was looking at this, I was like, there's a math equation right here. It, do you see what this chapter is saying? An unbeliever is less than Christ. The Christian is less than Christ. Jesus is the greatest. Everything points up to him. You want to come to God? You must be born again. When you're born again, do you know what you must do? Keep giving him the credit and glory. Everything points back up to him. It's all that. I am less than Jesus. And so are you. In this one chapter, we see this repeated. And what John is saying here is we must get rid of jealousy by giving the spotlight, the focal to Jesus. John says, I, I must focus all my energies and effort on Christ. Let him shine while I fade in the background. In his book, Zealots, Dave Gibbs reflects on the nature of true success. He writes, um, Dave Gibbons says this, Charlotte's Web is a wonderful little children's story by author E.B. White about a spider named Charlotte. 
How many of you read this story? Right, yeah. It's this, if you don't like spiders, too bad. Because it's a great story. Now, what's the story about? A pig. Wilbur, that's right. But what's the book's name? Nope, it's Charlotte's Web. This book is not about Wilbur. It's about Charlotte making Wilbur important. Everybody focuses on the cute little pig. Wilbur is worried in the beginning. And what's he worried about? When he gets a little bigger, when he gets a little fatter, what's going to happen? Bacon. He's worried that he's going to become dinner. And that's a valid concern. And Charlotte, this spider that the rest of the barn animals don't really care about, they become a good friend, Charlotte and Wilbur. Wilbur grows larger, and Charlotte uses her resources to try and rescue Wilbur. You can see this message. Terrific. That the farmer sees and starts looking at the pig, thinking it's terrific. Now, first off, the farmer's a little dumb. There is a spider that can spell. That's amazing. But what's the point? That Charlotte is saying, look at this pig. He's terrific. He's wonderful. He is worth saving. The story builds to the final chapter that is titled, The Moment of Triumph. So what's Charlotte's moment of triumph? If you haven't read it, uh, spoiler alert. As the story draws to a close, Charlotte the spider is in the barn dying. While Wilbur the pig is being judged at the county fair. She can hear the roar of applause for Wilbur as he wins the blue ribbon which saves his life. She finds, Charlotte finds her great joy in knowing her life meant success for another, a close friend. Though no one's going to remember her, they're going to remember this terrific pig because of the things she's done, the sacrifice she's made. And she is satisfied in knowing Wilbur become better. Gibbs in his, in his book too about success for adults said success is about fading. The great ones willingly move into irrelevance. If you want to truly succeed, you back up and let others carry the mantle even further. That's what we must do. Fade into the background, willingly move into irrelevance and support someone else's success. When Mother Teresa was passing through a crowd in Detroit, a woman remarked, her secret is that she is free to be nothing, therefore God can use her for anything. She didn't want to be anything. She didn't want the prizes. She just wanted to serve. If you and I want to conquer jealous comparisons before they get us, we need to humble ourselves and truly humble ourselves so much that we let other people, not just Jesus, but we elevate other people underneath Jesus so that they can keep going further than we thought we could. Exalt Jesus, lift him up, increase that, decrease ourselves. It's not an easy thing. That goes contrary to what the society says. Look what John does as he continues his talk in verse 31. 
He, meaning Jesus, has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. Notice he's repeating things here. He's from above. He is greater. John says, Jesus is from above. I am from earth. I'm lowered. Verse 32, he testifies, he, Jesus, testifies what he has seen and heard, but how few people, how believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true. John says, Jesus speaks of heavenly realities. I speak of earthly realities. Only he can show who God truly is. Verse 34. For Jesus, he is sent by God. He speaks God's words. For God gives him the spirit without limit. The father loves his son and has put everything into his hands. Right there, he just said, all authority has been placed into Jesus. I'm just a voice out in the wilderness. Verse 36. Anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. You have to go to Jesus, not me. That's what he just said. John says Jesus gives eternal life. You must believe in him. He really just told his followers, his disciples, his students, go to him. Don't come to me anymore. He's bigger. He's better. He's from God. He is God. Don't compare us. Many people know about Isaac Newton. What did Isaac Newton help give us the understanding of? Gravity, right. Okay. His famed encounter with a falling apple. Now, Newton discovered and introduced the laws of gravity in the 1600s, which revolutionized astronomical studies, but few knew where he actually learned from. If it weren't for Edmund Haley, the world might never have learned anything from Newton. It was Haley who challenged Newton to think through his original notions. Haley actually came up to Newton and corrected some of his mathematical errors and prepared geometry. Uh, geometrical figures to support Newton's discoveries. I I always thought Newton just figured it out and explained it to everybody, but Haley was the one who helped him, especially with the mathematical principles of natural philosophy, easy for me to say. Haley edited and supervised the publication and actually financed its printing, though Newton was wealthier and easily could have afforded the printing. Historians call it one of the most selfless examples in the annals of science that Haley made sure people knew what Newton was doing. Newton began almost immediately to reap the rewards of prominence, and Haley received almost no credit. Haley did use the principles to predict the orbit of a return of a certain comet. Do you know which comet that is? Haley's Comet. See, you're paying attention. Good job. And how often does that come? 76 years. Good. That was close. They get an a, a for. And because the comet only returns every 76 years, the notice for Haley is very few while everybody knows who Newton. Haley embodied, embodied what John said here in verse 30. He must increase while I must decrease. And you and I must do the same thing with Jesus Christ. 
Don't worry about who gets the credit. Just advance the cause of Christ. I, I like to brag about my church a lot because this is a great place. Uh, my goodness, you people are just amazing. And I like to brag, but I, it's not that I want to go out there and say, hey, you should see what my church does and elevate you guys. I, I have to fight that because there's a lot of ministers out there who, like one guy said, Donnie, you've got it too easy. There's no way you should be there this long and still have it this easy. And I said, have you met my leaders? I'm kidding. But there's a reason that I'm so excited about this church. Because I see so many people within here are saying we're just normal people lessing ourselves, Coming together for a great God. I mean, you really look around at us. We're a hodgepodge of the American culture. And it works because it's not, the focus is not on us. The kids are making noises and they whine or somebody's coughing and got sniffles and, and this, and we don't care. We want to be here for Jesus and then support each other. And the proof of all that is you actually listen to me. This weird guy who chooses to be bald for now. Or now, because we just all together want to get to know Jesus. And if we take that, that truth about Jesus is greater, and we continue to take it out there, imagine the light they're going to see. And we will keep getting to say, it's not about me. That's the challenge I got from John when it points to Jesus. And I am proud to say so many of you do this so well. We can continue to do it and we need to do it even more. So this week, here's some homework. Look for ways to decrease so that he can increase. If you wanna talk about what it means to becoming more of, of a Christ follower, once you know that Dustin and I are always available, the elders would love to meet with you. We want to talk to you because it's not about us. It's not about St. Joe. It's about what Jesus did on the cross for you. We're going to stand and let's pray. God, we thank you. God, I thank you that when it comes to truly looking at the facts of who you are, the truths of what you have done, there is no comparison. And yet, God, you laid all that down for me. For each one of us here. You chose to willingly be a servant. To die on the cross. To carry our sins. So that we could become something we never should be able to be. Which is children of God. Lord thank you for this lesson from John. About your son. And as we go into this time of, of worshiping you with our voice and music again. Let it ring out of who we truly know you are. And not, not just fade as the music fades, but it actually crescendos in our life as we leave here today that we can continue to point everything to you. Thank you, Jesus. And in your name we pray. Amen.